people of God in Christ, last week we set in upon Psalm 11, and uh, we continue this morning. I, I don't know that Psalm 11 is really so different or unique from other psalms, but uh, it recently struck me as being a rather uh, pithy psalm, uh, and thus uh, the idea of doing this uh, current sermon series on it. Uh, basically, we're, we're taking the psalm apart, uh, piece by piece, and hopefully in the end, putting it uh, back together in the most helpful of ways, uh, so that we can hear it as believers in Christ for our great comfort. So what kind of psalm is Psalm 11? Uh, I ask the question in a non-technical sense, uh, simply to get us thinking about what is happening in Psalm 11. Uh, Some psalms are psalms of praise, uh, by which we declare the glorious deeds of God, uh, by which His glorious character is revealed. Uh, Other psalms might be called prayer psalms, uh, by which we are given words to pray and cry out to God in our need and weakness. Uh, And certainly Psalm 11, or in Psalm 11, uh, there is um, much need and weakness, um, but there are really no petitions addressed to God in Psalm 11. Instead, Psalm 11 fits in a, in a, in a category or a, a classification, if that's not too cold a word, uh, a classification of psalms that we might call faith psalms. And, and that's a kind of false distinction as well, because it takes faith to praise God, uh, as we do in certain psalms of praise, uh, and it's a matter of faith to cry out to God, as we do in certain prayer psalms. But here in Psalm 11, the point would seem to be, far more directly, the confession of faith. It might be helpful to think about, uh, to think about it in this way, that, that Psalm 11 falls into the same category as Psalm 23. Uh, As you well know, Psalm 23 begins with this statement of faith. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, It doesn't say, Lord, please be my shepherd so that I will not want. Uh, And in the same way, Psalm 11 begins, in the Lord I take refuge. It's It's a statement of faith. But of course, we don't usually talk about statements of faith but rather the confession of our faith. So what's the point of Psalm 11? It contains no statements of overt praise to God. Uh, It contains no direct petitions to God. Uh, God, please do this or, or do that. Instead, I would put it to you that it's a faith psalm. It's a psalm by which King David is confessing his faith. And, and as we pointed out last time, uh, a psalm by which David is teaching and calling upon the people under his rule to do the same. And so, as we also pointed out last time, Psalm 11 is a psalm that teaches us that confessing our faith is, is not just a once upon a time kind of thing. There hopefully was a day in your life Uh, when you made a formal profession of your faith. Uh, You met with the elders to have your faith evaluated. Uh, You stood before the church to profess your faith publicly. 
And that's all exactly as it should be, but professing or confessing your faith ought to be a a weekly thing, even a daily thing, and especially so when trouble comes upon you. Notice I didn't say if trouble comes upon you, because trouble will come. I'm sure you are all very well aware of that. And so King David is is confessing his faith when he says, In the Lord I take refuge. But now as we continue beyond the, the first great confession of faith, a confession that we can and should take up as well, as, uh, as we continue, we hear now uh, the reason why David has confessed his faith in this way and so has laid claim to the Lord as his refuge. The reason is that he is being threatened. Even more, he is being taunted by the enemy. At least that's what he was hearing. That's what he was feeling in his soul. The taunt of the enemy. And given how nonspecific David is in in identifying his enemy, the the right way to read it uh, quite broadly is to hear the taunt of the devil, of Satan himself. So let this be the first point, the temptation to flee. The claim to faith that David makes, the same confession that we should make, is, in the Lord I take refuge. But David makes this confession of faith in direct opposition to the taunt of the enemy. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? The point is clearly made. The the juxtaposition, juxtaposition is put in place. David is answering the taunt of the enemy by confessing his faith. I think it's fair to paraphrase uh, in this way. Since I take refuge in the Lord, how then can you think to tempt me to run away in fear? But the actual language is better than my paraphrase. No surprise there. Because the opening statement is exactly what it needs to be. A, a, a clear, bold confession of faith in the Lord. I take refuge. And the challenge last time was to ask the question, do you do this with your faith? Do you confess it? Uh, In the face of danger, do you say, in the Lord I take refuge? In the face of temptation, do you say, in the Lord I take refuge? In the day of discouragement, do you say, in the Lord I take refuge? Faith is is something to be confessed. Uh, Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then, true to Paul's pattern, he says the same thing again. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Faith begins in the heart, but if it has begun in the heart, then let it rise above the troubles of your heart to be confessed upon your lips in the Lord. I take refuge. 
This is where David was. His confession of faith was his answer to the taunt of his enemy. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? What we can see in Psalm 11 is even a kind of progression within the taunts of the enemy. First, it's simply the temptation to run away, uh, fight or flight. Uh, you, you likely remember that from your school days in science. Well, that's what sin has done to us. Sin has subjected us to the same rules as the animal kingdom. Fight if you have to. Fight if you're cornered and can't run away. But otherwise, if there's a chance to flee, then take to your heels and run with the, with the hope that you might be able to run uh, faster uh, than your enemy, the devil. And granted, that really is where we are in our sin. Uh, we've made the point in the past, and, and it should be made again and, and reckoned with that, that Jesus said of sinners like us, you belong to your father, the devil. Satan really is the the ruler of this world. Jesus called him so. So if it's just you and the devil, if it's just you versus Satan, then there really isn't any verses. We're done. It's over. You can run, but you can't hide. That's where we are in our sin. But, But just in our sin is not where we are. We are in Christ, remember? From last time, remember what we said that that it's in the Lord and not just with the Lord or 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 uh, from the Lord that we uh, that we find refuge. We are in Christ, and this needs to be not just our understanding, but our bold confession as well. In the Lord, in Christ, I take refuge. So here's the next progression of uh, Satan's taunt against us, uh, to mock the mountain. The second point is mocking the mountain. When we take refuge in Christ, Satan's next strategy will be to mock the mountain, to mock at Christ. And that's why his taunt will be not just to run away, but to say, go ahead, flee like a bird to your mountain. It might seem like a passing reference. I don't think it is. Uh, David surely is referring to Mount Zion, which is to say to the temple, with the temple on Mount Zion being the dwelling place of God, which is a truth ultimately, I hope we understand, fulfilled and maintained now in Christ. And yes, Satan is exactly this bold, and he's exactly this blasphemous, Go ahead, he says, run away. Just try to take refuge in Christ, but he will do you no good. Flee like a bird to your mountain. It won't do you any good because you belong to me, and I must be your master. I think one of the greatest hurdles that we have in our sanctification is uh, that in one sense, We don't take into account the reality of Satan and his claim on the world. Perhaps we are too embarrassed to say or or even to think within us that 
there really is a being called Satan. But that's fine with him. He, he does his best work in people who don't even believe that he exists. Or maybe we think, uh, we think it's somehow wrong to say of Satan that he is the ruler of this world. But our Lord Jesus himself gave him this title and designation, calling him the ruler of this world. But otherwise, we, we, we just remain blind to the hold that the devil still has on our flesh. You don't have to look for a demon behind every bush to believe in Satan because he did his best work and his worst work when he captured our first parents in the Garden of Eden and all their children after them thereby. In other words, Satan doesn't have to sneak around whispering temptations in our ears. Our flesh is under his rule and dominion. There finally is little difference between the whispered temptations of Satan and the instigation of our own flesh. This is what we hear in James 1.14, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, dear sinner, understand this, that by refusing the rule of Christ by which you might be saved, you are not remaining free and unaffiliated. You will never be Lord unto yourself. There are two choices in life. One one is your starting point at birth, belonging to the evil one and wanting only to carry out your master's evil desires. The second is to bow the knee to Christ, to repent, to believe in Christ so so that you will be placed upon the mountain. But even if you do that, even as a believer in Christ, you will spend your life hearing the taunt of Satan, mocking the mountain, saying, flee like a bird to your mountain. And while your answer must be, In the Lord I take refuge, yet you must stand firm upon the mountain of Christ and of God's grace. While Satan would mock the mountain of our salvation, we must mount the mountain. By faith, we must remember that we can can always flee to the mountain where Christ bled and died for us. And yet rose again from the dead. Hebrews 12, verse 18 says, For you have not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and, a, and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messengers, uh, messages be spoken to them. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, jo- and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Next in the taunt of Satan is the threat of violence. Let's face it, the, the taunt of Satan is more than words. 
There's that old adage, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that's just not true. Words do hurt. And the words of the evil one, the taunts of Satan, can discourage us greatly, whether whispered in our ear or rising from our sin-bound flesh. But, but that's not the end of it. There is more. According to the writer of Hebrews, Satan is the one who even holds the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 refers to Satan as the one who has the power of death. Here's where we truly see the authority of Satan. By hearing that he even holds the power of death. And so it's no empty threat when we hear in, in Psalm 11 that the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. This is not the... This is not the wicked just flexing their their muscles. Uh, This is not some small country putting their one missile on display in a parade to impress their own people. This is a very real threat. And all we have to do is to read the history of the church to see how many of our brothers and sisters have been called even to lay down their lives for Christ. So the taunt of Satan includes his boast that he holds the power of death. The wicked bending the bow, fitting their arrow uh, to shoot. This is the equivalent uh, uh, of those in our own day loading their guns, ready to, to go after Christians, ready to attack the church, ready to use the threat of violence to turn the disciples of, of Christ away from following him. It's a real threat. And we must face up to it. The the call to take up our cross is not an exaggerated metaphor. Instead, the believer's cross-bearing is based upon the reality of a world fallen in sin, a world where Satan reigns for now, a world that we must not cling to, whether or not we make it through life without being called to lay down our lives for Christ. And here's where we see that the the refuge that David speaks of in verse 1 must be be a refuge both in life and in death. It's tempting to think of of this all as as just poetry, a, a, a metaphor. But David was no stranger to war. In fact, uh, once his battles had been fought and he ruled over a kingdom of peace when David wanted to build the temple of God, God said, no, your hands are too bloody. You shall not be the one who builds a house for me, but your son Solomon will build my temple. So, So David is not speaking metaphorically. The wicked men of his kingdom really were bending the bow, ready to assassinate him and and to kill his people the wicked really have fitted their arrows to the string ready to attack in the night in order to accomplish their wicked plans what refuge was there then for david and and for the faithful with him did did they have any real guarantee that the wicked would would not or could not hurt them no it was the same refuge that we have in christ 
that the seed of Eve, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, would one day come. And our advantage, beyond the opportunity to hear the call of David to take refuge in the Lord, our advantage is to hear the words of Christ himself when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so this is what we must mean when we confess our faith by saying, in the Lord I take refuge. Our confession must be the same as Job. When he said, though he slay me, yet shall I hope in him. Our confession must be the same as David in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will, I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Our confession must be the same as John the baptizer, who shortly before losing his head for his faith, said a man can receive not one thing unless it be given to him from heaven. He must increase. I must decrease. And so what we must remember is that while, yes, Satan holds the power of death in this world, yet he does so only under the sovereign rule of God and the authority of Christ over his church. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If Satan kills us, it is only as he serves the good purpose of God for us. Are we willing to accept that? There was a day when the, the taunt of Satan was even allowed to reach the throne of God. Satan answered the summons of God, came before him, and God said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan said, in essence, from the earth where I rule and reign. But when it came to God's servant Job, Satan could only do what God gave him permission to do. He could strike Job, he could make him suffer, but he could not kill Job. So does that mean Satan does not hold the power of death? No, but he only uses the power of death as God grants him permission. Satan's power and authority are very real, but the evil one does not operate except under the power and the authority of God. So in the end, the only way the enemies of God can effectively taunt us is if we believe their lies, forgetting the truth and the promises of God. And here is, here is the further progression of Satan's taunts, hectoring hopelessness, we might say. Verse 3 of Psalm 11 adds to the taunt, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The taunt of the enemy is, is now gone from the temptation to run away to the mocking of the mountain, calling upon David not to trust in his God, uh, then to the threat of violence, a very real threat for David and for us. But now to this end point, but as much truth as the taunt uh, may use before, here, here I think it's the matter of sheer lies. The taunt of the enemy ends with this question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
First of all, who said the foundations are destroyed? Who said the foundations could be destroyed? Here we come back again to to Psalm 2. We sang earlier, it's our psalm of the month. And we come to Psalm 2 to see that the enemies of God are, are coming together and they're uniting themselves against God. They are plotting, they are planning, they are, they are stirring up one another in their rebellion against God. And what is the result? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And there it is again, the mountain of the Lord. And it's Christ on the mountain. Not just in his death and resurrection, but but in his eternal reign now as the king. The king whom God has put in place. The king who is even our savior in the end, let us understand this, that, that the foundations cannot be destroyed. Satan may taunt us saying, there's nothing you can do. But on, on one hand, we need to understand and say, well, yeah, that's true. There is nothing I myself can do. But there is nothing I need to do. Because the foundations belong to God. And my trust is in him. Psalm 102, verse 25 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And as God was rebuking Job, he he said to him, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And to bring things back to Christ as our great King on high, Isaiah 28, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We ought not to do it lightly, certainly not in our own strength, but If God laughs at the devil, then we should too. But let our laughter at the taunts of the evil one be based upon the truth of God, a truth that we know by his word, a truth that we remember and confess as our own. And this is where Psalm 11 goes next. David returns to that opening confession of faith, but he does so by remembering and proclaiming the truth of who God is. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's for next time. But the message and the lesson this time is to hear the taunt of the evil one, to hear it with respect for the power and authority that he has as ruler of this world, but to hear it with ears of faith. As we just heard from Isaiah 28, we don't have to be in haste. We need not run away in a panic from any situation in our lives. And there will be times when things seem to go from bad to worse. And sometimes 
it's not just what it seems, but what it really is. But it will never be time to panic. Be afraid, be very afraid, but never panic. Remember that that's what courage is. Courage comes not in the absence of fear, but exactly in the face of fear. You can't be afraid and yet courageous uh, at the same time. In fact, you can't be, or I should say, you can be afraid and courageous at the same time. In fact, you can't be courageous unless you are also faced with fear. Second, in conclusion, don't let Satan mock your mountain. Uh, If your mountain is Christ and his saving work for your salvation, your mountain of refuge is Christ at the right hand of the Father. So don't run away in a panic, but definitely run. Run to Christ. Run to him first in your mind, in your remembrance of who he is and who you are in him. Run to the cross and stand there. Again, remember the, uh, the sacrifice that he made for your sins. Claim it as your own. Run to the empty tomb and know for certain that death is defeated and sin is vanquished forever. And so third, let the evil one do his worst, which is to kill he holds the power of death in this world, but, but never beyond the will of God and the plan of God for bringing you home to glory. What a great comfort. What a great comfort, unless, of course, we are clinging to this life and to this world that is passing away. But whereas our life is eternal in Christ, and whereas Christ is the resurrection and the life, Then recall the words of Martin Luther, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And finally, don't succumb to hopelessness. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But the foundations are not being destroyed. When the foundations are God, His Word, and Christ as your Savior and King. What can the righteous do? We can remember the truth of God's Word. We can claim God's truth in faith. And we can confess our faith daily, perhaps hourly, as needed, saying, In the Lord I take refuge. Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for alerting us to the taunts that we are likely to hear from the evil one. We thank you that we can know that Satan is defeated even from the foundations of the earth, and now through Christ he is defeated for us as well. And so grant that uh, as uh, as we hear his taunts, we would remember the promises of the gospel, remember your truth, and that we would not grow discouraged, that we would not run away in a panic, that we would not uh, lose sight of the mountain of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We pray that uh, you would fill us with this faith and none other to our great comfort and to the glory of Christ our Savior. 
In his name we pray. Amen.